Hello, podcast friends and family, and welcome back to episode 97. Yes, that's 97 of the Back Pain Podcast. Now, anyone who's been to a gym or attended an exercise class, a weightlifting class, or even moved something heavy at home might have heard the term neutral spine. And this might have sounded something like, make sure you keep your spine in neutral, or make sure you don't bend your spine, keep it straight, or keep a hollow back when you're lifting. But why is this? Why are we taught to keep our back straight when we're bending and lifting? Is it protective against injury? I.e. are we more likely to get injured by lifting with a rounded back or is it likely not to make very much difference? But another question that's fascinating is, is it actually possible when coached to actually maintain a neutral spine? I.e. can you keep it straight when you're trying to? What is actually happening to the spine in these positions or does it actually just bend quite a lot anyway? And it's not actually possible to maintain this neutral spine. So here to answer all of these questions and more is Dr. Lewis Howe, a strength and conditioning coach and researcher from Essex in the UK, who's recently published a paper on exactly this alongside Greg Lehman, titled Getting Out of Neutral, The Risks and Rewards of Lumbar Spine Flexion During Exercise. So no one better to discuss this incredibly complex topic with. I'm your host, Rob Bevan, and this is the Back Pain Podcast, episode 97. Enjoy. Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. And welcome back to episode 97 of the Back Pain Podcast. Delighted to be joined by Lewis Howe. Lewis, we're going to jump straight into it today. What is meant by the term neutral spine in reference to bending, lifting, deadlifting, squatting? What are we talking about with that neutral spine term? Yeah, and, and this, is actually, this is actually a bit of a challenging, um, a challenging term to really hone in on, on, on an accurate definition here. Because if we speak to, our, if we speak to a biomechanist who may be um, as part of their research, they look at cadaver, cadaver spines and they look at neutral position relative to a cadaver. They might define it a little bit different to what we what we might get if we're speaking to, say, like a, a physiotherapist. With, within these cadaver st- uh, studies, these biomechanical studies, generally what they'll do, they will define that neutral position as either being a position of elastic equilibrium, if you like, where, where we see the least amount of internal stress for on the lig- osteoligamentous structures to, to maintain that position as being a neutral position, or what they'll do is they'll align the end plates so that they're parallel to each other in order to be a relative to the motion segment, in order to be able to, to, to optimize load sharing across that interbody joint. And then, and then within that, what they might also do is they might discuss a, a neutral zone where we see the least amount of resistance of the osteoligamentous structures to movement of that of that uh, motion segment. And that's a concept that commonly gets discussed as it relates to sort of um, our technical models and about trying to maintain our spine in this sort of neutral zone when we're lifting. But the, the issue with this concept of neutral zone is it's really a, an in vitro um, a model. It doesn't necessarily apply so much to when we're lifting in the in the in the weight room and we're exposing our spine to really high compressive loads because with those compressive loads what we see is that the the intradiscal pressure increases within the actual disc itself and then that tensions the the outer wall 
of the annulus fibrosis so that when we actually start to move the spine, we're going to get resistance to that movement from some of the passive structures that surround that spine. So there's a couple of studies that have looked at this where they've taken spines and they've increased the compressive load and they've found that the, the neutral zone decreases and decreases and decreases. And it's likely that when we're doing, say, our heavy squats and our heavy deadlifts, there isn't a neutral zone as it relates to a, to a real-life setting. There might be a zone there which is low in stiffness, and we might get a zone there where we get less resistance from, say, some of the ligaments, but we don't see this, what we would what we think of as a neutral zone as it's defined in these biomechanical studies. In, in real life, in, in a real-life setting, I mean, when we think about it, how we might use the term uh, a neutral posture, what we're really doing there is we're describing a, sort of like a standing posture, if you like, where it requires minimal effort of the muscles, minimal tension of, say, the ligaments around the spine in order to, to maintain that position. And that is a little bit different to what we might see in, in vitro in, in these cadaver studies, because if, especially when we think about lower segments of the lumbar spine, say L5S1, that might actually not be a position where those end plates are parallel to each other. And it because of the natural lordotic curve and that little bit of extension that we might have in those lower segments, that might actually require some flexion in order to bring those, those end plates so they're parallel to each other. And the reason this concept of, of neutral is so attractive to us as, as practitioners, as coaches, as, as therapists, is because this neutral sort of alignment, if you like, would maximize the load sharing across the interbody joints. So it's going to share the load out. And, and one of the ways that we can kind of think about why that might be optimal in reducing, say, a stress concentration at any one location across the spine is if I was to take, say, for example, a five kilo dumbbell and a sewing needle, and I put that sewing needle on my forearm, and then I put that five kilo dumbbell on top of it, so it presses down on it, what we would expect to happen is that sewing needle is going to penetrate the skin, isn't it? But if I remove that sewing needle and I take a spoon and I put the undersurface of a spoon on my forearm, and then I take that that uh, dumbbell and I place it on top of that spoon, now all of a sudden we don't see penetration of the skin because we're sharing that load across a larger surface area. So this concept of neutral is attractive to us as practitioners because it, it puts the spine theoretically in a position where the load sharing across that motion segment would be, would be optimized. And therefore, as a consequence of that, it would be a, it would be a, a strategy that maybe that we can use in order to, in order to manage injury risk. And, and, and that's a theory, isn't it? That that spreading of the load is going to be protective against injury. So that kind of, if we, as you said, that, that knitting sewing needle, knitting needle analogy, if those Jenga blocks, you know, if you think of the spine as, as Jenga blocks, you know, if all of those surfaces are parallel to each other, not tilted one way or the other, then that theory being that that stress concentration is going to be more spread out. And then, so is that yeah. actually then backed up by the research? So if we are then in that neutral zone, I guess this is the kind of the ultimate question of, of this, this, this show is, is that the case? So, you know, if, is staying inside that neutral zone better or more, should we say more protective against injury? Yeah. Well, if, we, if we think about the neutral posture we, or a neutral position where the end plates are, are parallel to each other, that's going to exist along a continuum. So if we flex a few degrees away from that, it might result in, in very negligible changes in say the tolerance of the spine to load. But, but probably nothing so to the point where it would actually have like a, a real world impact. And it might actually be that when we start going towards those end range positions, so if we get to end range flexion or end range extension, 
Other things change there as well in terms of load sharing. But when we get to those end range positions, it might be that actually at those points, when we compress the spine, we do see an effect on, say, the tolerance of the spine mm. to compressive load. But there are studies in, in, in cadavers that have shown that if you take a spine and you, you go into this sort of neutral alignment that we're talking about here, where the end plates are parallel, and you compare that to, to a motion segment that's flexed to about 75% of maximum, what, what you see is, is that actually there's no difference there in terms of the compressive tolerance or, or the tolerance of spine to compressive load. So even though theoretically that, that would be the case, how that kind of plays out in the real world would be, mm. would, be, uh, would be where the challenge lies there in trying to kind of like interpret that information. Although having said that, when you go to those positions of maximal flexion, which I'm sure we'll discuss, that's where the issues may uh, lie in terms of changing that relationship in terms of the load sharing and also placing additional stress on other structures to control that position, mm -hmm. to prevent excessive movement or excessive flexion from occurring in the spine during our lifting exercises. Okay. No, that, that makes total sense. I think we'll then, uh, then we'll come back on to that kind of maximal flexion versus other flexion in, in a moment. But to... to Go back to what you're talking to about that kind of then that neutral spine zone or the neutral spine posture. Often people will, I'm sure most people listening to that, if you've been to a, whether you've had a personal training session, whether that's with a personal trainer or an SNC coach, or you've been to a CrossFit class, or you've watched a YouTube video teaching you how to deadlift, you've probably been told to keep that spine, you know, straight or keep a neutral spine or, you know, hollow back or a lot of these phrases that people might have been familiar with or have heard of in the gym, you know, go and lift a dishwasher uh, from someone else's house. I'm sure someone, someone will tell you, oh, keep, keep your keep your spine straight, you know, careful of your spine. But is it actually possible? So, you know, and I know this is what your paper's kind of challenged and, you know, spoken about, which you know, we'll link to in the show notes. But is it actually possible to maintain that, you know, neutral spine or maintain that zone when you're doing a you know a coached or a, a normal deadlift yeah so if we, if we look at if we if we define it as a it, we'll think about it in like a real life setting we'll define it as this neutral posture so the posture that we have when we're standing upright with relaxed trunk muscles um, and it requires minimal effort of some of the active and passive structures to maintain that position what what's pretty clear within the within the research is that the spine flexes away from that neutral posture. So if we look at a movement, say, for example, like a squat, where we where the hip crease goes below the top of the knee, so what we might consider as like a squat just below parallel or something like that, you'll see that the spine will flex anywhere really between 20 or 30 so degrees. And then when you're doing, say, a deadlift with the, with the, with the weight on the floor, so you're deadlifting from the floor, you might see the spine flexes a little bit more. You might see the spine flexes actually within the research closer towards say 30 or 35 degrees. And then also within that, that flexion, where that flexion occurs away from that neutral posture is a little bit different depending on the region we're looking mm -hmm. at in the spine. It generally is that we get a little bit more flexion at the lower segments of the lumbar spine relative to what we see at the, at the upper segments of the lumbar spine. And that's if we're just thinking about these exercises is it, when we're thinking about just the squat and say, for example, and the deadlift, and, and that's been shown in trained individuals. So in trained, uh, say, powerlifters, um, weightlifters, uh, CrossFit athletes, they demonstrate this sort of flexion pattern when they're performing these lifts. And if we, if we kind of normalize those ranges of motion to their maximum uh, amount of flexion, so how much say, their spine flexes when they do a standing trunk flexion test, which is like uh, you stand with your feet hip-width apart, 
knees straight and you just kind of bend forward and just flop forward with the legs extended and how far you can reach there. If we called that 100%, when we look at, say, the way somebody performs, say, a squat or the way some forms of deadlifting, generally they're going to use about 50 to, to 80% of their, of their maximum flexion uh, capacity there. And then across different loads, we see something similar. So in a study by Andrew Fikotsky, they did they had uh, the athletes do good morning exercises. They tested their 1RM and then they had them um, uh, perform a good morning with 50% of their 1RM all the way up to 90% of 1RM. And then the, the spine flexed pretty consistently across all of the loads. And it generally remained somewhere about the 25 to 30 degree mark. So it seems to be that even irrespective of load, we still see this flexion occurring and it, just, it remains pretty stable across that range. And then what's interesting is even when you, t- you ask somebody to maintain a neutral posture, we still see spinal flexion occurring. Even when you give somebody feedback on how much their spine is flexing, you ask them to reduce that value of how much their spine is flexing, we see that they still can't stop their spine from flexing when they're doing exercises like squats and deadlifts. And, with, and within that, I'm thinking about full range of motion variations of those exercises. But one thing to point out here is it's still a, a variable that we can manipulate. So whilst we can't stop flexion from occurring, we can use strategies to avoid end range of motion. And we can use strategies to lower those values or increase those values. So we could, if we wanted to, cue somebody to flex more. And we could, if we wanted to, cue somebody to flex left when we're performing those exercises. But one thing that is apparent is if we think about that position of a a neutral posture, which we previously defined, when you perform these lifting exercises, you you do not maintain that neutral posture. You move away from that and your spine does flex away from those, away from those, uh, away from that position. That, that's fascinating. I think that will be probably quite a shock if people haven't heard this before, because, you know, when you see, if you look at, and, and obviously you're talking about trained individuals as you're talking about, you know, athletes and people that have that are used to deadlifting and squatting so and often you look at photos of someone doing an olympic lift and it looks like they are not in in any lumbar flexion in any kind of rounding of that lower back it looks like they're in a neutral position so then to hear that actually you know if you took an x-ray of them at that time that they're, they're going to be flexing to kind of between 50 and 80 percent of their max you know that's that's that is quite surprising yeah, and, and one thing to point out there in terms of what, a couple of reasons why we might not be able to see it is obviously there, there, there's some bulk around in terms of muscle bulk around around the the lumbar spine. So that as those muscles contract, that might make it a bit harder to see mm-hmm. um, what's actually happening there at the at the joint level. And then also what might also be making it more challenging is is there might be other sections of the spine that could be extending, which gives the gives the appearance that that lower or that lumbar spine isn't flexing. So for example, if, if somebody's performing say a deadlift and they're extending through their thoracic spine in order to get into that setup position or through that thoracolumbar junction, that might make it more challenging for us to actually see the, the flexion that is occurring lower down in that lumbar spine. And, and as we, as I said previously, we do generally see more flexion occurring at the lower lumbar spine mm. relative to what we see at the upper lumbar spine. So then you spoke about, you know, when you add that kind of compressive load, so if you're squatting or you pick up something heavy and you've got that kind of axial or compressive load, you know, then you, you will still, you know, regardless of weight, go outside of that neutral zone. Um, yeah, well, well, one thing to say about the neutral zone is it is something that changes 
over the course of over the course of the day. So like when you wake up in the morning and your disc has sucked in lots of water and it's hydrated, well then your neutral zone is going to decrease because as you start to to move the 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 fibers of the or the annulus fibrosis is already a little bit tension because the disc is taller. And then as you start to to flex, your neutral zone will have decreased because now those those fibers that are already being tensioned with the increased hydration are also going to get tensioned earlier when you start to flex the spine. Yeah. So it's important that, that we recognize that in a healthy spine, there is going to be there is going to be some some wiggle room in how much how how large that neutral zone is from person yeah. to person. But generally speaking, when you look at uh, say for example um, in vitro, in fact even in vivo studies, it normally counts for about twenty to thirty percent of maximum flexion. So maybe the first say like ten to to fifteen degrees, we might see that that there is little resistance from the osteoligamentous structures when we flex the spine um, under low under no load situations, under very low load situations. But like I said, when you compress the spine, that's going to reduce even further. And it's highly likely that when you've got a, a, a big, heavy barbell sitting on top of your back and your muscles are contracting and all of that compression is kind of squishing the spine together, if you like, that neutral zone is uh, is not a concept that we really need to be thinking about yeah. as it relates to like a, a real life setting like uh, our, our weight training. Yeah. So it's so ingrained in our society that kind of, you know, staying in neutral is good. Um, and that's obviously, as we said, that you kind of alluded to that came about through, you know, testing cadaver spines or pig spines, you know, bending them under load and seeing what happened to them. So what's the issue with this approach? And, you know, has that translated to kind of real world evidence when we're looking at, you know, people with back pain? Well, I, one thing to one thing to um, to to uh, to highlight here is that the cadaver studies came off after epidemiology uh, injury epidemiology studies that show that people that perform say lots of lifting tasks as part of their manual handling they might have a, a, an increased risk of developing things like low back pain. And if we look at sports where lifting is performed as part of the sports like Olympic weightlifting, uh, powerlifting, strongman, we see that in terms of locations of injuries low back is or the lumbar spine is one of the most prevalent areas that gets injured across those sports so so that's what kind of drives this sort of thought process where if we know the spine is flexing and we know that lifting is a um is a is a is an act that can create low back pain or can give someone a problem with their low back in terms of the development of pathologies where then maybe it's the flexion that's occurring that's causing yeah. that but obviously when you're performing these lifting tasks it's not just that the spine is flexing, it's the spine is being exposed to these compressive loads, these shear loads, and these bending moments. And there is also research there that shows that if, depending on the height that you lift an object from, might also increase your risk of injury. And that kind of developed this sort of thought process around the role that flexion may play as a mechanism of injury. And I think that I think there is research there that shows that flexion has the potential, especially when we look at the cadaver studies and look at some of the uh, the musculoskeletal and modeling studies, there is evidence there that shows that flexion has the potential to result in, in pathologies at the spine. But why we are able to perform, say, squats and deadlifts as part of our weight training routine and not get injured, as we see in terms of these cadaver studies, is there are there are limitations to to how we go or to how those or to these uh, cadaver studies in terms of how we need to interpret that information. What I mean by that is, is that when we look at these sort of cadaver studies, which are a good piece of research, and they certainly give us an important piece of the puzzle in terms of understanding the mechanisms of injuries, but there, 
that obviously doesn't account for the adaptability of of our spines in in a real world setting. So our all like all of the tissues in our body, the vertebrae, the discs, the ligaments, they can all adapt to loading. So one thing that these these cadaver models don't necessarily or aren't able to take account of is because they're looking at dead tissue. When they repetitively say compress a spine and load it with flexion, extension, and cycles there, and they're doing thousands and thousands, that's obviously not realistic to what we see in real in a real world setting. Mm. We might do lots of cycles of flexion, extension under some load, but then we'll have some rest, and then we'll go back to doing it, and then some rest, and then go back to do it. And in those periods of rest, that's where we might see some adaptation within the tissue where the tissue itself gets stronger. And that's what's going to act as a, um, as a mechanism there, if you like, yeah. or a stimulus for improving the robustness of the spine. There's something mm. that's not necessarily going to get accounted for. Even though those, those cadaver studies are still really important pieces of evidence, they, they are obviously missing out in terms mm. of looking at the adaptability of the spine. But they're never really meant to, to do that anyway. They were they were there to just try and understand the mechanism of injury for things like yeah. disc injuries or ligament yeah. injuries or so forth. And then there's other things that you need to consider in terms of um, some of the limitations around cadaver st uh, studies. Uh, so, for example, when we talk about maximal range of motion in a in a in a uh, in vivo in a real life setting, we we might do something like the standing chunk flexion test, which we spoke about previously. And like how far I move forward is going to be determined, or how far I flex forward is going to be determined by the the flexion moment caused by gravity pulling on my my upper body mass, and that's difficult maybe to simulate in a cadaver model. Mm. And then also it might be the subjective sensation I feel as I lean forward in terms of how far I feel I can stretch into that position, and those things we're not you're not gonna you're not gonna get as an indicator for full range of motion when we're looking at uh, these cadavers in vitro. So there might be some discrepancy there around how we determine full range of motion in a in a motion in a cadaver model versus mm. how we determine full range of motion in a in a real like life setting. And then and also guess, within those cadaver, go on. And I can say that that's I guess that's similar to with a cadaver model with any other body part. You know that adaptation. <laughs> you know if you if you took an Achilles and just constantly stretched it and stretched it and stretched it and stretched it, eventually you're going to overload it and it's going to and it could potentially snap and it could tear. You know with enough force, but we're not accounting for that. You know adaptation of the body where, as you said, we stop, we rest, we recover. You know we're not going to do a hundred thousand cycles of a flexion movement without any kind of rest and, uh, and and recovery time. I guess which is I think what it took to kind of damage some of some of the, some of the pig spines i think yeah and, and that becomes and that becomes one of the one of the limitations of that and and with, to be fair to the authors of these types of work they they identify that they are mm. they suggest that that is a limitation so it's not like they're trying to use that evidence to say you know you've only got hundred thousands of cycles of flexion in your lifetime they're, they're not they're not presenting it in that way but i think sometimes mm. that's the way that it can get interpreted but yeah at the same time i don't think we should just count that evidence because oh they don't they can't account for they're not accounting for yeah. um adaptations because it still does give us some useful information yeah. around how some of these structures get injured yeah so I'd, I'd love then to go on to in terms of talking about this in terms of real world training so obviously with you you know your athletes as an snc coach and researcher you know how you said that you can cue this so you can kind of tell people to reduce or or change the amount of spinal flexion there are when they are doing a deadlift or a, or, or a or, or a squat they you know they can change it to a degree but we know that that potentially doesn't 
decrease or, or increase the risk of injury. But do you still then use that with your athletes? So, you know, if you are coaching someone to do a deadlift who might have never deadlifted before, or you've got an athlete in your gym, you know, who, who's doing some doing a deadlift, do you actually tell them to maintain a hollow back, keep that spine straight? Or does that just depend on the the task which, you know, the athlete is doing or preparing for? Yeah. yeah. So so one thing I would say there is is, is on the on the, on the first point of the question, I do think there is potential there for for managing the position of the spine and it affecting injury risk. I do think that avoiding some of these end range positions, because yeah. when we go to like end range end range flexion, we are going to be placing more stress on certain components of the of the disc. We're going to be compressing that anterior compartment of the interbody joint. We're going to be tensioning that posterior wall of the annulus, which could set up potentially a disc injury. Mm-hmm. It could also set up something like an end plate fracture, or or um, it could add, add quite a lot of stress on the on the ligaments of the spine, which could also impact on the compressive tolerance of the spine. So I do think this is something that, as an S and C coach, we need to be mindful of, and it needs to be something that we we need to have strategies in place to help our athletes avoid those end range positions, particularly when we're exposing them to high load situations. And that's really what I'm talking about here in yeah. terms of giving this context. And especially when if they're not used to it, head- I guess. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So when we're doing our sort of like our, our, our heavy squats and our heavy deadlifts, I do think avoiding end range position is important or end range flexion or end range extension is going to be important. In terms of setting this up and coaching this, it really just depends on how the, the individual presents. So some athletes might not have much of an idea in terms of their coordination and how they can how can they can move at say the hip without necessarily moving massive amounts around the spine. So it might be that we need to cue more of a hip flexion strategy relative to a spine flexion strategy. So that could be just using cues like keep the keep the spine long and strong trying to prevent them from from or try to think about not rounding the spine when you perform these lifts and those types of cues have been shown to have more of a positive effect in terms of avoiding spinal flexion relative to when uh, you just focus on say for example bending at the hips and the knees tyson beach has got a really nice study that looks at that Hmm. other ways that we can coach it is we can start try to develop a little bit of kinesthetic awareness around avoiding those those end range positions of flexion and trying to think more about the hip hinge so we can take say for example like a dowel rod we can place that on on the sacrum have the have the other uh, the upper portion of the dowel rod on the on the mid thoracic spine and have them practice hinging forward without losing those two points of contact and that can be one way again that we can start to coach somebody to to be able to hinge at the hips without necessarily excessively flexing at the spine and then in other athletes, what you'll sometimes see is that they've they've almost got a misrepresentation of, of what the task um, in, requires. And as part of that, they'll, they'll really try to hold this lordotic posture within their spine. And they'll really mm. try and arch their back as they lower themselves down. And with those athletes, it might be more beneficial to actually coach them to flex their spine a little bit and yeah. to lock their spine in, in, a, in a mildly or moderately flexed position as they lower them or, or as part of the setup before they lower themselves down during something like a squat, okay. if you like. Yeah. And in those individuals, we might be using cues there around like maybe trying to make themselves an inch shorter by bringing the sternum and the pubis a little bit closer together. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Another, a, another strategy that we can use is we can take like a, a, a foam roller, have them hold it against their pubic symphysis as well as the, the manubrium of the sternum, so the top of the sternum, ask them to hold those two points of contact and then lower themselves down mm. in the squat as well in order to be able to kind of 
hold that position of, of flexion without necessarily hinging into a position of extension through, say, like the, the lower thoracic spine or the upper lumbar spine. Okay. So it's not that you will avoid that flexion, if you see what I mean. So by putting a towel, a, yeah. a towel, a dowel on someone's back, you're accepting that they're going to flex from their lumbar spine, but it's just about yeah. avoiding the, the extreme end ranges of, of either flexion or extension um, exactly, because yeah. of that, the potential risk that, that they, if they're untrained in that position or they're not used to it, then that might increase their chance of, uh, you know, one of the injuries which you mentioned yeah, before. Think, yeah, I think there's evidence there that suggests that going to maximum, to a position of maximum flexion, I think it could increase injury risk. Now, I understand yeah. there's limitations to this. I understand yeah. there's a lack of perspective studies and those sort of things. But I do think that it would change that load sharing relationship to the point where you are going to start stressing some passive structures. Mm. And one thing I do think we need to consider there as well is if we do start stressing, say, for example, some of the ligaments, and we do exceed their tolerance for loading, and we do cause damage to, say, a, a ligament or a disc, then those passive structures, because of their avascular nature, are going to take longer to heal than if we were to say um, have any damage to say the muscle tissue, which would be maybe a little bit more uh, required if, in order to provide a, a, an extensor moment if we were to bring that spine a little bit away from that end range position. Yeah. So I do think there's some there's some decision making that we need to make there. Not yeah. that you're going to mitigate all injury risk by holding this neutral posture, and I do think that's something that we need to be really mindful of. Yeah. Our programming strategies and the way that we create overload in our exercise programs is probably more valuable to us as a as a injury risk management tool than the worrying yeah. about whether or not the spine is flexed say 80 yeah. percent of maximum versus 50 percent of maximum and, but and at the same time it is anyway <laughs> so yeah as you said yeah, we, we, it's exactly, going to be doing exactly. anyway yeah and i just think and, i just yeah. think even and i don't see enough of a performance benefit in terms of allowing someone to maximally flex the spine yet i do think there might be additional risk so because of that because of that kind of risk reward ratio I would always choose to to avoid end range flexion in order to get the 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 uh, well stimulus if you like provide a stimulus to the athlete that drives the physiological adaptations I'm looking for with these exercises because a lot of times when we're programming say for example a, a deadlift or a squat to an athlete and that and it's not the athlete's sport well then we're not necessarily worried so much about how much weight is on the bar. It's more about trying to stimulate those physiological adaptations that underpin their sports performance, which might be things like strengthening the hip extensor muscles or increasing the cross-sectional area of some of those muscles. Mm. So I think that's where we need to just try and weigh up what we're trying to achieve with the exercise, as well as as best as possible, reducing the injury risk as much as, much as we can. And and it also comes down to how you're explaining it. You know, you said you're you're putting it whether you're putting a dowel on someone's back, or you're getting into flexion. You're not saying this is going to stop you from your disc exploding. You know, or which I've heard. You know, those type of phrases that people kind of yeah, use. Yeah, no, and, and the, the injury risk and, is and in I the think, overload with any as with any training platform or play, with any training. It's yeah, that no, overload, I'm, as you said, and that's what a good coach does is manage that that volume. Exactly, and I think I think there is there is. Um, I think sometimes that the position of the spine is overplayed as an independent risk factor. And I think that sometimes, sometimes we think that actually, if we, if we just keep away from flexing the spine, then the load that we expose it to, it's going to be able to cope with that. Mm. And I don't necessarily think that's the, that's the case. I think we're yeah. discounting the fact that as part of those injury mechanisms that we see within these cadaver studies and biomechanical modeling studies, is that the spine isn't just flexing, it's flexing under compressive load and shear load, and it's being exposed to this bending moment that is all part of that of that injury mechanism. So I think sometimes because we because we can see flexion, 
And we can't necessarily see compression or shear load and those sort of things. Mm. And they're quite complicated as well to kind of get a good grasp on what might be happening there and estimating those things. I think that because we can see flexion a little bit more, we give that a bit more weight as, a, as an independent risk factor when we're mm. trying to weigh up the way that or the movement strategy that the athlete's using and their potential injury risk. So what about with athletes that where their sport demands a lot of flexion? So a prime example is something like a rower. You know, a, you know, a, a rower. They, you know, at, they're they're pulling a lot of weight. You know, with you know, I don't know the degrees, but I'm guessing quite a high degree of of spinal flexion. If you have an athlete in that position, would you encourage more, or would you just increase the tolerance doing kind of doing other exercises? How would how would you manage that differently? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think there's two trails of thought here. One trail of thought is that they do it as part of their sport, so therefore we should build, um, we should train them in those positions in order to develop robustness. But I think with that one, you're making with that with that thought process, you're making the assumption that if I deadlift with say 80% of maximum flexion, there's not carryover into positions of say 90 or 100% flexion mm. in terms of the the structural adaptations that we see. So we're making the assumption that the discs doesn't get stronger and the ligaments don't get stronger and the and the vertebral end plates don't get stronger when we're when we're loading with less flexion. And I think that I think that's a little bit off course. So yeah. so my own personal strategy is in the weight room, I'll try to manage their injury risk by avoiding those end range flexion positions yeah. as we spoke about previously. And I wouldn't necessarily encourage them to flex more. But I would use these exercises where I know the spine is going to flex. And therefore, as a consequence of that, I know that we're going to be getting some some adaptations, or I'm confident, I should probably say, yeah. that I'm going to be getting adaptations in some of these passive structures that will be getting loaded as part of their sport. That's really interesting. So would you, would you ever coach a, I wouldn't say maximal, but, you know, a, a deliberate flexion movement, you know, that, you know, there's a lot of talk around kind of Jefferson curls and, you know, those type of movements. Would you ever utilize those kind of uh, with a, whether it's a patient or with an athlete generally? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So like, say for example, um, like a pistol squat, most individuals when they do a pistol squat will be flexing close to, to maximal, but no one's doing pistol squats with 200 kilos on their back. So <laughs> I hope not. You, <laughs> you're not yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you see, so you're not seeing the same sort of compressive loading and the shear loading and the bending moments that we get with these heavy squats and deadlifts. So just because I have this approach as part of my own practice where I won't mm. let somebody during a bilateral lift maximally flex their spine, well, not purposefully encourage that, doesn't mean that I think going to those positions under lower load situations with quite controlled volume, is that problematic? And it obviously depends on the person's injury history, but I, I don't think there's any issue in terms of doing, say, um, squatting exercises where the load is lower, so for example, our single leg squats, and uh, allowing for a little bit more spinal flexion. And I actually yeah. think, especially with exercises like single leg squats, pistol squats, those variations, it can actually be something that could be a useful strategy. So because of the position there, when we're standing on one leg, the, the hip's a little bit abducted, it's get, and then we get into that end range position of the of the pistol squat. We're going to be maximally flexing the hip, and some individuals may find that a little bit uncomfortable, particularly if they're a little bit sensitive in some of the anterior structures of the hip. So allowing them a little bit of posterior tilt and encouraging a little bit of flexion in and around the spine mm. might offload some of those structures around the anterior aspect of the hip while still allowing them to fully flex the knee. So I think one of the things that doesn't really kind of um, 
that doesn't necessarily always get recognized with um, the fact that the spine does flex and, and thinking about ways that we might even encourage that in some individuals is that spinal flexion really gives us a, an additional strategy to allow people to perform these movements successfully and load share not only across the actual spine itself, but across different joints. So between the spine and the hip and the knee and being able to, to maybe find a way to help and to use an exercise to help an individual without necessarily sensitizing things mm. or, or placing additional stress on other structures just because I've got this kind of fixed technical model in my head that says that the spine should never do this or should, yeah. should never do that. Love that. And I think from my experience in the, in the clinic, when I'm looking at kind of, you know, coaching and, and getting people to do these movements, it's often around kind of fear and that patient's thoughts and beliefs, you know, in the patients who have been told never to bend or never to pick up anything heavy. It's that kind of, okay, well, life is going to make you pick up heavy things or life is going to make you bend down. You, you can't, uh, you know, if, if clinicians listen to this, they will have had patients in the same situations who have bought things to help them put their socks and their shoes on because they're terrified of bending down to put their socks on. And it's that, okay, well, you know, life's going to throw you a curveball. So how can we prepare you to do that? So getting them to do things just like a seated deadlift and, you know, with, with a really light two kilo dumbbell, you know, in a you know 70 year old lady who's never bent before and so it's not about it's just about preparing them to do that movement and sometimes getting changing their understanding of that actually this isn't a bad thing it might be a bit sore right now and it might hurt other times but it's not a, inherently a bad movement to do we just need to get you better at doing it and so that's when i use it a lot in the clinic as well is that kind of uh, you know to try and change those thoughts and beliefs as he said knowing that that 70 year old lady is going to go and pick up her grandchild next weekend you know potentially and you know, she's going to have to bend, you know, so she's going to have to do that. And if she's in that constant fear of this is going to slip a disc or this is going to throw my back out, you know, we have to show her that, well, actually, that's not going to be the case. Yeah. And, and like, it, I think we're talking about two different two different contexts as well. Because I'm, I'm yeah, thinking yeah. about avoiding maximal flexion when, when somebody is using a loads, maybe oh, over, yeah. say, 60% Heavy of their one rm but no, I don't think I don't think we should be I don't think we should be demonizing positions no, of flexion so. for yeah. most individuals. Maybe it's a strategy there in the very early stages of their rehab. Mm. But as you've suggested there, you know, we need to make sure we bring that back in yeah. as part of their rehabilitation program. And it's and it's really about trying to trying to find ways that we can make them feel okay about that flexion. So yeah, yeah. I completely agree with the example yeah. you've given there. Under heavy loads though, I do think the game changes a little bit. And whilst and whilst you may be able to get away with with lifting in a maximally flexed in, uh, position, whilst you may be able to get away with that over 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 a long time period, it doesn't necessarily mean that your injury risk isn't changing there by adopting these positions of maximal flexion. And also within that, one thing that I would one thing that I would also um, say around going into these positions of maximal flexion, I do think that one of the issues we have is that genetics is obviously going to play a large role there in terms of somebody's injury a much bigger role much much more of a bigger role than say spinal flexion but we don't necessarily know who's got that genetic profile that's going to increase their injury risk so whilst i understand you know it's, it's quite easy to go pick somebody from from the internet and be oh look they're maximally flexing their spine and, and that, that they, they they may be obviously we're not measuring it so it's difficult to determine and they may be maximally flexing their spine but maybe they got dealt the hands the, the the hand that actually they they can get away with it, but me as an S and C coach, if I'm working with a group of say twenty or thirty athletes, I have to make decisions that are going to be best for everybody, 
in terms of trying to manage their injury risk. And the other thing to consider there as well is, is, is for most athletes who use, say, the weight room as a tool to supplement their sports training, getting them a, a better deadlift by two or three kilos in terms of a, better, a bigger PB probably doesn't amount to any kind of improvements in their sports performance that would be that would be would be measurable if you like and what we need to always look to do is to manage that that the individual's injury risk so that in the weight room we, we do our best to never allow our athletes to get injured and sometimes that may even compromise mean that we have to compromise performance yeah. because i don't think there's any doubt that people are stronger in a fully flexed posture when they're performing say a deadlift versus a position of say say 60 or even 70 percent of maximal flexion. I don't think there's any doubt that people are stronger there because of the way that the mechanical constraints change with the task, we are able to generate more torque in that position. But that doesn't necessarily that doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't without a greater injury risk. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that, that might not have a negative effect on the individual's longevity as it relates to their mm. to their lifting career or as it relates to their, their own sporting career. And I guess that as you said, talking about genetics, the people that you know, I guess something like an Atlas stone or a strong man, you know, those type of things, those are huge degrees of kind of, I, I assume huge degrees of, of spinal flexion because you can't keep a, you know, flat air quote, you know, back as you're doing an Atlas stone. You have to kind of hug it and you, you, you're rolling yourself up into that ball. But that's going to be suited to people that can do that task. So their genetics are going to yeah. play them. Whereas how many people have gone over attempted it and, you know, they're not suited to doing that. So they're not going to be going down the line of becoming a professional strongman. So we're looking at the cream of the crop here, you know, the, the best of the best. And, you know, they're, they're probably going to have the best genetics, as you said, you know, how much are they bending their spine? You know, how adapted are they to be able to do those movements? One thing I would say about that, though, is that to, to, to somebody who's lifting, um, say, for example, a hundred kilo stone, that might only present it relative to say their deadlift as as a as a as a as a moderate load relative to how much they can lift in a deadlift. Obviously, it's more of an awkward load, but in that instance, that spinal flexion is actually going to be really beneficial to them in yeah. order to be able to lift up that load. It's actually going to be a strategy that they can use yeah. in order to be able to lower the loads on the spine. So when you when you round the spine and you're picking up a stone. Not only does that allow you to get your hands around the actual stone, but that spinal flexion actually brings the center of mass of the stone closer mm. towards the, the axis of rotation of the hip and the lumbosacral region, which from a technical standpoint is going to allow them to reduce the bending moment. And as a consequence, the compressive loads on the spine, because, because now all of a sudden the muscles and the ligaments and the passive structure of the spine haven't got to produce the same amount of an extensor moment in terms mm. of the internal extensor moment. So there's lots of things going on there. They, they, a lot of times with those strongman athletes, what they can lift in the gym, as an example, when they're squatting and deadlift, will far exceed what they might be able to lift in terms of uh, an atlas stone. But it is more of an awkward load. But the interesting thing there is, is the technique that they're using with that spinal flexion, maybe they're compromising um, their, their position of the spine in order to bring down some of those other things that we've discussed as potential risk factors. And, and some of Stuart McGill's work has suggested that. Some of Stuart McGill's work with, um, with strongman athletes has shown that actually getting into these positions of, of uh, spinal flexion may be a strategy. Well, it is a strategy that they're using in order to keep the compressive loads and the bending moments mm. to a manageable level. 
Yeah, and as you said, that that centre of mass closer to your body, as it, you, you can't lift out a two hundred kilo. I don't know what what are they, I don't know what do they lift in the in the world's strongest man. What's the heaviest stones they go up to? They're pretty heavy. Oh, I'm not too sure what they lift. It. Yeah, I'm not sure too sure what they lift in those sort of competitions. I think in the McGill study they used a hundred kilo atlas stone off the top yeah. of my head. I've but, got a feeling but, it goes up to the two hundred uh, mark. I think at that the at the world's strongest man type thing, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I think sometimes the assumption people make as well is that they built they they built these sort of like. This this architecture, this 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 structure as it relates to their spine, they built that with the atlas stone. But a lot of times they're doing a lots of like mm. the, the more the traditional strength and uh, strength and conditioning work. They're doing more yeah. the traditional strength and conditioning work, and that will have a huge role to play. And then they're obviously alongside that they're doing these strongman events. So I think I, I think the assumption is is that well then they must be always flexing their spine, but maybe not necessarily the case. Mm. Maybe they actually do a lot of their strength work. Um, say performing things like squats and deadlifts and those sort of things, not going to maximal flexion, building up a robust spine. So then when they go over and they they perform their strongman events, that spine is architecturally put together in such a way where structurally it can tolerate some of those positions a little bit better. And there's also some like morphological changes there that occur when you when you do say when you when you increase the cross-sectional area of say for example the erector spinae muscles, you are going to increase their moment arc. So as a consequence of that, for the extensive moment that they produce, the compressive load on the spine is going to be less. So there'll be architectural changes that years of strength mm. training will put these individuals in a place where when they perform those those tasks, they do it in such a way where they're, they're able to cope with the loads that they're exposed to because of some of the adaptations and some of the... Um, some of the coordinative strategies that they use when they're performing the task. And that's really, that's something I, I hadn't, I think I had considered, but I hadn't considered was the, that kind of the, the, the crossover of, as you said, doing those regular deadlifts and that, that will add that kind of crossover benefit to doing a more of a flexion movement, as you said, with the rowers, you know, that, and I, I, th- I think I kind of knew that, but I hadn't really considered that until you, you'd kind of said that. And it's, uh, you know, so that's a really interesting point. So thanks for that. right no that's so that's been an amazing kind of whirlwind of that paper is there anything else that you think that we haven't discussed from your from your paper or just from your you know wealth of expertise when it comes to um flexion that you think you'd like us to uh like us to cover no not necessarily i do think i do think we we need to feel like we we, obviously the, the evidence is very clear it's been this evidence has been present for decades now that's shown us that the spine does flex when we perform these lifting tasks and it is something that we that we can't necessarily change but i also think that we should be very positive about it it is something that is going to enhance our performance when we do these lifting tasks that spinal flexion is important for as i said previously for for reducing the the flexion moment created by an external load by bringing the loads closer to the hip and to the spine also by increasing the strength of our of our back muscles so when we flex the spine because we lengthen that erector spinae muscle, that actually put those muscles in a better position, more of an optimal alignment, in order to produce more, more of an extension mm-hmm. torque. So it, this spinal flexion that we're seeing as part of, as part of say, deadlifting or squatting actually helps us in enhancing our performance. So I do think that we, the mindset of athletes performing this exercise should be such that spinal flexion is a, is a good thing when it comes to performing these lifts. But it's always about context and it's always about how much spinal flexion we're seeing and also how we're getting into those positions of spinal flexion. Because it can be that, you know, if sometimes you'll see people set up for the deadlift, they'll start performing the deadlift and the hips will pike up in the air first and then the spine flexes and then they initiate the lift. 
Well, that person's being exposed to really high compressive loads, really high shear loads relative relative to their strength levels, I should say. And at the same time, they're having to decelerate that flexion that they've kind of ended up gravitating towards in order to complete that lift. And I think that's when you start seeing these things potentially being more problematic as well. There's other variables than just position that we need to account for here. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for that. Is there, and so for anyone who wants to find out a bit more about you or a bit more about the paper which you co-authored, where can they go? Where, where can they go to find out about me? Obviously, you're very active on Twitter and I've shared a lot of your stuff, so it's, uh, it's brilliant. So I really recommend giving you a follow on Twitter. Um, but where else can people go? Actually, kind of, yeah. Probably my research gate has the, uh, has the uh, most of my papers on there and, and people will be able to read that and access them if they're interested. Brilliant. And what's your Twitter handle? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no idea. Well. I think it's I think it's Lewis S and C, maybe. Uh it is. Oh, where are we? It's uh Lewis How underscore S and C. That's S A N D C. There we are, I've got it. That's so, how good so. I am at plugging myself. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah brilliant fantastic well thank you so much for for joining us it's been a, a world i really appreciate your time and clearly this is a something you're hugely passionate about and i could ask you questions about this for hours but i appreciate <laughs> your time is valuable so thank you so much for that and hopefully we'll uh, love to have you back for uh for, for another another chat at some point in the future brilliant thanks Rob. no worries all the best mate Thank you so much for listening to that episode and thank you so much to Dr. Hal for joining us on the podcast and taking up his valuable time to answer my questions about people bending and lifting and and, and moving their spines. So thank you so much everyone who has stuck around and listened to the end. Now, as always, if you like what you hear, please give this a share on social media or pop it into a WhatsApp group with some friends or people that you know need to hear this information. And always, if you yourself or know anyone who's struggling with back pain, head on over to thebackpainpodcast.com where you can simply pop in your postcode and you can find someone tried and tested by us to help you with your back pain. But that's it from me. I've been your host, Rob Bevan, and we will catch you on the next episode. Over and out.